the capacity of uncertainty to power change, you only really capture if at least you start, not because you know you can do it, but because you simply can't bear the idea of not trying. Hello, welcome to On The Edge, a podcast about making unexpected connections everywhere and anywhere. My name is Roland Harwood, and in each episode, we talk with somebody who's making sense of our increasingly connected world. In this conversation, I had a really fantastic conversation with Margaret Heffernan. Margaret's an entrepreneur, CEO, writer, and keynote speaker. She's currently professor at the University of Bath School of Management. She's been the CEO of five businesses, and is the writer of six books. Her third book, Willful Blindness, was named one of the most important business books of the decade by the Financial Times, and her TED Talks have been seen by over 12 million people. The basis of this conversation was her most recent book called Uncharted, How to Map the Future. I first met Margaret about seven years ago when I'd seen her speak about her then latest book, and afterwards I happened to bump into her outside the venue And we had a short conversation, just a few minutes, uh, and I really appreciated that. And she's kind of stayed in my memory ever since. So it was great to reconnect with her. In today's conversation, we talk about challenging the idea that certainty is good and uncertainty is always bad. And also, when we're faced with complexity, what should we do instead of just optimizing for efficiency, which seems to be the norm? And then later in the conversation, we talk about how can we form regenerative societies? So I hope you enjoy listening to this conversation. I started out by asking her, how can uncertainty power change? Enjoy. Uncertainty is really fascinating, partly because people generally have a very negative view of it. They think it's a bad thing and certainty is a wonderful thing. And I had a conversation a while ago with Gert Gigarenzo, who had a very beautiful take on this, which was how many people want to know what they're getting for their birthday? Almost nobody. How many people want to know what they're getting for you know Christmas or Hanukkah or Eid or whatever? Almost nobody. How many people want to know exactly the day on which they're going to die? Almost nobody. Uh, how many people, when on the day they get married, married, want to know whether their marriage will be successful or not? Almost nobody. These are all quite profound things in real life, and we generally want to be uncertain about them. And we want to be uncertain about them because that's part of life's excitement, and it's part of our sense of agency, which is we have is some influence over some of those things. You know, we have influence to a degree as to whether or not our marriage will be successful. We have influence to a degree over the day on which we'll die. And we certainly find pretty horrifying the notion that we would have no influence over those things. And equally, if I said to you, it's possible now with the magic of some kind of serious technology to tell you every single thing that's going to happen in your life from now till the day you die, would that give you a great degree of joy and relief? And the answer would be no. It'd just be like waiting for the train to come, right? You know it's coming and 
but all you can do is stand on the platform and wait. So, you know, those sort of thought experiments, I think, are interesting because they show us that uncertainty is a big part of what we find positive in life. And I think that, you know, in the context in which I wrote the book, what I felt was people had this, had developed this rather unhealthy appetite or indeed addiction um, to, um, to certainty and felt that, oh, if only they could be certain, everything would be okay. Um, but actually, I think that's false. I think if we could be absolutely cer- certain that the fight between authoritarianism and democracy today um, was indeed doomed, that would not bring uh, a lot of people joy. So, so the point of the thought experiments is really to say two things. One is uncertainty is an absolutely ineradicable aspect of life, and B, it gets a bad press. Actually, uncertainty is what gives us agency. It's what gives us choices. It's what, it, what gives us a sense of who we are across the whole of our lifespan. So I think it's really important to see uncertainty as an opportunity for change and choice, rather than as this kind of terrifying, bleak monster, which we would hand over anything, including all of our identity, to avoid. Yeah, I really like that. And thank you for making the case for uncertainty as a, as a trigger for joy. I think that's a, a beautiful way of framing it. It's a question of balance, though, isn't it? We, we want some uncertainty and, and some certainty. And I'm just curious how you how unprecedented do you think the times are that we're living through today? Do, doesn't every generation claim, uh, and sorry, this is a statement, I'm not sure if I believe it, but doesn't every generation claim to be living in the most kind of turbulent of times? Is there not something kind of narcissistic about that? And well, yeah, so just curious about your thoughts on that and whether whether you've looked into the kind of the, the history of uncertainty as well. No, it's a really great question. And it was on my mind very much when I was writing the book. Um, I remember going to hear Yuval Harari talk and saying, and this was about three or four years ago, you know, we're living through the greatest uncertainty ever in the history of the world. And my teenage daughter just burst out laughing. Uh, and I was very <laughs> proud of her. You know, I, I think that that is, was, a, you know, an expression of narcissistic kind of generational narcissism. And of course, every generation thinks that it's special sometimes specially privileged as the post-war generation felt, I think, and sometimes deeply unprivileged as the so-called lost generation between, you know, caught between two world wars felt. Um, I mean, and, you know, my daughter just turned to me after she, you know, stifled her giggles and said, you know, what about living through the Blitz? What about the Black Death? You know, the Black Death, it's, you know, something between two-thirds and three-quarters of Europe's population vanished. I mean, really? Really? And I think, in fact, you know, what Harari was trying to articulate, though poorly, was that there is a greater tension than there perhaps has been in the past between our belief that we can have certainty and the reality that keeps correcting us. Ah, which okay. is, you know, we're being told by, you know, the gurus of Silicon Valley that we can protect, predict what your child's going to be when they grow up, you know, what their life chances are, what's going to become of them, whether they'll live a Nobel, win a Nobel Prize or not. We're being told that we can predict 
you know, what technologies will be dominating our lives 20 years from now. We're told that we can predict whether or not we'll have a barbecue summer, uh, what the British economy will be doing, you know, six months from now. And because these predictions are uttered with extraordinary sort of rhetorical energy, we really fall for them kind of hook, line and sinker. And especially when they're about things that we don't understand very well. So on the one hand, we think, well, those people over there really seem to have a lot of certainty. I wish I could have some of that. And then life happens to us and all these things turn out not to be true. And we feel deeply disappointed that the thing, the visions that we put our faith in um, didn't, didn't come true. And that makes us feel, oh, my God, life is much more uncertain than I thought it was. But the mistake was in thinking that it wasn't. So I don't, I'm not sure you can, well, I know, I mean, one of the defining characteristics of uncertainty is that you can't measure it. Do people feel more uncertain today than in the past? I don't think the reality is that life is more uncertain, but I think they have a sense of entitlement to certainty, which perhaps past generations didn't have. That's interesting. It's like a second order effect. Yeah, yeah almost impossible to measure but, but a fascinating thought experiment, nevertheless. I, I think the other thing, too, is that, you know, we talk about uncertainty as distinct from risk. And the thing about risk is that risk can be quantified. You can put probabilities against it and you can quantify the value of what is at risk. But with uncertainty, you really can't. So what that means is that we have very few real frameworks with which to think about it, which of course, therefore makes us feel even more anxious about it. And I think it's important to distinguish between uncertainty and anxiety, because, you know, anxiety is what we feel about uncertainty. But there clearly are many things in life which are definitively uncertain. And one reason you know, I start talking about epidemics on page three of my book. It's not at all because I saw this coming, but because they are a perfect emblem of uncertainty in the sense that we know a lot about them. We know that they always happen. We know that they will always keep happening, but we don't know uh, when they'll happen, where they'll start, or what the next pathogen will be. So there, there's no profile of a, an epidemic because everyone is distinct. So this is kind of the worst of all possible worlds, right? <laughs> Which is we know these things happen, but we can't, there isn't enough information um, to do any kind of planning. And so that may make us anxious, but the uncertainty is endemic to the event. Well, is that is that really true? Something living in the UK that frustrated me is hearing that uh, Singapore was executing Britain's pandemic response beautifully uh, um, a year ago when, when Britain, you know, had underinvested in in some of that capacity, so was ill-equipped to deal with it. So um, there were good plans in place, at least at a time there were good plans in place. Um, so yeah, I'm kind of curious how the COVID example, which you, yeah, as you rightly say, you touched upon and, and in the version of your book that I have, there's a, there's a postscript where you, where you write about it, but obviously it wasn't, hadn't happened yet, but when, when you originally wrote the book, but how has that shifted your, your thesis around uncertainty and the, these uncharted times that we're through? Well, so I think, I think the thing about uncertainty is that, 
where you can look at something that's uncertain and know enough about them to know that they could have a gigantic impact, which is true of epidemics, and that they have a high likelihood, which is always true of epidemics, then you can't really plan because you don't know when it's going to start and you don't know when it's going to finish and you don't know what kind of beast it's going to be. But you can prepare. And this, I think, is at the heart of you know, the Center for Epidemic Preparedness, which is they ask this very brilliant question, which is, okay, so we know we don't know what the pathogen's going to be or where it's going to start or when it's going to start. But we do know that there are a whole bunch of things that in an epidemic you really want to have. And um, so why don't we ask ourselves this great question? When a pandemic emerges, what is it we will wish we had been doing today? And then let's do those. And the downside of that approach is that you can spend an awful lot of time, energy, and money preparing for something that may not happen for 10, 20, 30 years. And, you know, my view of what the British government did, and actually the American government did something similar, is that having prepared for many years, and as you say, quite rightly, actually having prepared quite intelligently, because we're very in love with this idea of efficiency, a government completely driven by ideas of efficiency or as they call it, austerity, thought, well, this is a complete waste of money. You know, I mean, we've been putting money against this thing forever and it doesn't happen, so chuck it out. And, you know, and and furthermore, we have much more urgent things to do, specifically prepare for Brexit. So um, let's take the resources we were putting towards pandemic planning, preparing, and let's use all those things to get ready for Brexit. And in fact, that's what they did. They first, you know, Theresa May first of all suspended the pandemic preparedness office, and then Johnson closed it down altogether in order to release resources for Brexit. In addition, of course, both of those governments and Cameron's governments hugely underfunded the NHS, believing that they really understood how much capacity it needed, that they could predict that. In other words, they were blind to the uncertainty. And so, you know, at the time that the pandemic emerged in the UK, I think there was something in the order of 84,000 full-time vacancies in the NHS and a capacity of ICU beds running around 90%. Which really means, to be honest, if there had been a really serious plane crash or a motorway pileup, the NHS would have been seriously pushed to respond. But this, you know, this kind of, I have to say, very 20th century belief that efficiency is everything um, really did us incredible harm because efficiency only has effectiveness in situations where you can predict with a high degree of certainty. And when it comes to things like pandemics, then you absolutely can't. And you can see this. I mean, people in finance understand this, I think, better. So after the banking crisis, you know, one of the things that the Basel regulations called for was hugely increased capital within the financial system. Now, this is spectacularly inefficient. It's an inefficient use 
of capital. But the banking crash of 2008 happened because of the over-efficient use of capital. So there's a, a sort of acceptance that, okay, having all this capital on our books is, a, is an inefficient use of capital, but what it does is it gives us resilience when the next banking crash comes because we know it will come, but just like a pandemic, we don't know when, we don't know what will trigger it, and we don't know where it will start. So we're prepared to embrace this level of inefficiency because it's the only way we can protect against something that is intrinsically uncertain. Yeah, so that's fascinating to me. And I saw a guy called Roger McNamee, I think his name is. Oh, yeah, Yeah, VC. VC and was on the board at Facebook, but now is very critical of Facebook. Yeah. talking at the RSA a few years ago, saying the kind of Silicon Valley mindset, which I think you touched upon already in our conversation, is all about optimizing for efficiency. Right. And that's kind of what's got us into, to some degree, where, where we are in terms of, yeah, maybe that difference between our perception of certainty and the reality of it that you touched upon earlier. So what do we optimize for? What should we optimize for instead of efficiency? Efficiency has been the mantra. And in a world of finite money and finite resources and a finite planet, at one level, it seems self-evident that you know we shouldn't waste a penny or a drop. And yet you're advocating something different. So, yeah. How, how do you reconcile that? And what else should we be optimizing for instead? Well, I think you have to learn to distinguish between those things which are um, complex and those things which are complicated. So things which are complicated, I can use an analogy um, in the days when I used to fly all over the world. Um, When I went to the airport and I checked in my bag and I got my boarding pass, that was actually quite a complicated process. It probably involved multiple companies why right. there's somebody who owns the who a company that owns the airport, maybe a different service company that owns the check-in people behind the counter, maybe even a different company that is in charge of loading baggage baggages. Um, you have the airline, and uh, and behind all that, of course, you have a lot of software built by all sorts of other businesses. Um, but it's pretty much the same every single day. I mean, yeah, you know, you get somebody kind of trying to to fly with their grand piano from time to time. But generally speaking, right, it's pretty much the same. My bag isn't that different from your bag. You have quite a lot of data about how much baggage people are going to bring with them because of their online check-in. So this is very complicated, but it's very predictable. Um, The thing about complicated systems is they're very linear. They are very predictable. And as a consequence, they are very well optimized by efficiency and by technology, because they're always pretty much the same. Now, once I get on the plane and into the air, I'm no longer in a complicated environment. I'm in a complex environment because there's a high degree of uncertainty about exactly what's going to happen up there. There is a high degree of uncertainty about how passengers are going to behave, what the needs of the aircraft might be. And um, and there's also a recognition of a high degree of danger in the sense that if something goes wrong up there, it, instead of it just being a minor problem, it could be a major disaster. So this is a situation that's complex because there are more forces acting on more forces than I can see or predict. 
So in that situation, efficiency will not be my friend. So what engineers do is they think, okay, this is a, a, a situation, a situation of complexity and uncertainty. So what we want to engineer for is robustness. Robustness is distinct from resilience in the sense that resilience means we can recover from the disaster. Robustness means we can keep going through it. So you have four engines, which is more than you need, so that if one or two drop out, you can still keep flying. And you have multiple operating systems for the simple reason that if you had one operating system running all four engines and there's a bug in that one operating system, they take out all four engines. So you're over-engineering something in order to give it robustness. So you're saying this because the impact of a, of a problem would be enormous, I'm going, to, I'm going to forget about efficiency in this context, and I'm going to engineer for robustness, which is more expensive, but it's going to give us qualities which we feel in this circumstance are worth the extra effort and cost. I really like that. All of the, so, um, where my mind is taking me in your response is the original ARPANET. The designs for the internet were specifically designed to withstand nuclear attack, and therefore redundancy, yeah, was built in, um, so so that no single node could be taken out with a nuclear weapon, and and you know communications networks would right. be taken down. So. So that principle of robustness, I think, was built into this uh, the connected world that we now live in. But that connectivity increases the complexity of our systems and uh, and the and and increases the fragility of them as well. So there's does the robustness that you build in one place just shift or create problems or create complexity or uh, fragility elsewhere down the line, perhaps? I think that. You know, from a design perspective, yes, the internet has this kind of robustness intrinsic to the way in which it's designed. But then I think what it hit was the sort of galvanizing force of capitalism, which seeks to dominate, right? It's about competitiveness and winning. And as you have huge concentration of power across this system in the hands of really quite, you know, very few companies, I think that takes the robustness out of it. So it's not so much that the design in itself isn't robust, which, as you exactly say, you know, it was designed to be, but actually the way that it's been, um, if you like, colonized has made it very, very much less robust. And you can see that in the quest for dominance, the loss of robustness becomes more acute in the sense that um, if you look at something like the Internet of Things, right, Amazon would love you to buy all of your everything through them. They would like everything in your house to send data back to them. And the consequence of that, if you ex- extend that to all the households in the world, which is you know clearly the vision, if not the reality, um, is that actually if you then attack Amazon, you take out everything. So yes, the system, you know, certainly things like the Internet of Things and mobile devices and, and sensors and so on have taken what was originally a very robust system and made it super fragile. Absolutely. And but that what's driving that is not the internet per se. What's driving that is the desire for commercial dominance. 
Yeah, so that's I guess that links to some of these antitrust lawsuits that are happening in the States against the kind of monopolistic position of kind of big tech firms. I think this is really kind of incredible that the tech world in itself seems so infatuated and obsessed with efficiency that it seems to have a very poor understanding of uncertainty. And some of that, I think, is is an arrogance that's sort of intrinsic to technology. But if you take talk about this sort of marvelous marketing fantasy of driverless cars, which can all communicate with each other and therefore stay perfectly spaced and travel around in convoy and so on and so forth, um, you know, it's a kind of neat dream. It's also a hacker's paradise and it's a carjacker's paradise. You know, yay, we can stop one car. They are all stop. You know, we're absolutely in, in heaven. So, you know, the... You know, and if you say, oh, well, we're going to put security in, you think, yeah, well, mm, that's actually a very bad design process to think we're going to design something that is intrinsically catastrophic and then try to put a wrapper around it in the hope that somehow, you know, we protect it. That's completely not the way that you design for safety. Right. Um, so I think, you know, I, th I think... In some way, you could, if you wanted to, you could see what's happening in the tech world as a sort of face-off, if you like, between the power of technology to be creative and the power of capitalism to be destructive. Just curious, I heard a quote the other day from a guy I don't know anything about called Bob Johansson. I don't know if you've heard of him. He's at the Institute for the Future in Silicon Valley. And the quote, which I liked, and I'm just curious what you make of it, is the future will reward clarity but punish and punish certainty. The future will reward clarity and punish certainty. I thought there was something, I haven't done any more uh, investigation than just kind of note that quote, but I was curious what you thought of that. And given that you're now a writer, how do you find clarity in amongst all this complexity and uncertainty that you know we, we've been talking about? I mean, it's, it's very hard in Silicon Valley to prize certainty and clarity apart in the sense that, you know, some of the, the sillier ideas coming out of Silly Valley are both clear and in the minds of their creators certain, but actually a vast amount of it is is really just marketing hype and propaganda. It's, it's a land grab or a kind of mind grab, if you like, hoping to own certain ideas in order to dominate in that particular market. It's a very, very ugly rhetoric to my mind, and it frightens people, and it's designed to frighten people. I write in some way to, to give clarity, but also to give people a, what I hope is um, you know, a better understanding of really what's going on in their world, especially as they're increasingly surrounded by people who don't and forces that actually don't want them to understand. And I think there's a huge amount in the sort of obscurity um, of language with which Silicon Valley surrounds itself that is absolutely not designed for people to understand it, that the more baffled um, a consumer is as to what they're using and how it works, the more passive they are and the more inert their responses to the 
fewer and fewer choices that it offers. So what gives you hope or agency for change? So we've talked a lot about the sort of negative, uh, well, some of these forces and uh, especially of the big tech firms, but where are you seeing green shoots for positive change, maybe in other sectors or in other parts of the world? Um, Where are the weak signals that we should be focusing our attention and nurturing? Well, I think, you know, one of the things that gives me hope is that we're heading, you know, full tilt into a climate crisis. And what's becoming clearer is that for the last 30 years, quite a lot of people who were not singing their own praises and not coming out with vast amounts of marketing propaganda have been working this problem with real diligence and creativity. And we have more capacity to respond to the climate crisis than we might have had had we waited until it was on our doorstep, as it now is. So, you know, that's absolutely astounding. I mean, it's absolutely astounding that lots of people in the wilderness decided, nevertheless, this is a big enough problem that even without much attention and, you know, sex appeal, I'm going to start working the problem. And we have an enormous range of new technologies and new thinking, which I think if we can find the political and social will, you know, do stand a very good chance of getting us out of this mess. So those are the groups where I see levels of creativity and courage of a kind that, you know, I think left Silicon Valley a very long time ago. So that really gives me hope. The fact that people without fame or fortune plow these really crucial furrows is something that human beings have done throughout all of our history. So it's not novel, right? In a way, we are where we are because of it. So human creativity gives me that hope. Um, and the ability of people to try stuff without people throwing money at them to so-called incentivize them. Um, So I have a lot of hope in that. I have a lot of hope in people's capacity to work together. I have, you know, in some ways, a rather perverse hope that competition is so immensely destructive that as the kind of super moguls of Silicon Valley try to outstrip each other, they'll just destroy each other. And what about the changing and evolving role of government? And, you know, we talked a lot about business, but, you know, um, yeah, what's the role in government in all of this? Is that, Are they behind the curve and is their job just to kind of regulate or, or to what extent can they rebalance or address some of these things? I think there is a really powerful role for government, but I also think that our democracies need to become um, much more participatory and in a way much more educational I think we are all guilty, and I definitely include myself in this, of thinking, yay, we've got democracy, it works pretty well, it's not perfect, but it's pretty good, and if I just vote, then that'll be good enough, and and I'll be looked after. So I think we've, you know, we inherited a paternalistic form of democracy, which actually isn't really up to where what we need right now. And so I think there's a big question about can democracy evolve fast enough, well enough to keep pace with technological change? Um, and, I, and, and whether it will or not, I don't know. I think, that, I think it's possible that it could, but whether it will, you know, I, I'm, I'm uncertain. Um, but I, think there is a, I think there is a role for government for the simple reason that um, businesses don't have social legitimacy. That's not the game that they're in. 
Um, they act on behalf of shareholders and sometimes employees, um, but they are given a license to operate by society, but there's nothing in their corporate governance that gives society a voice. Only governments can do that. And so I think that, you know, we've seen a standoff for many years and at different times in history, a kind of standoff in terms of who's go- who's really calling the shots, be it government or or corporations. And for my money, I think governments need to be better informed and to take their own role more seriously. Um, I think the tech industry has done a breathtaking job in getting a lot of license from government while keeping it entirely in the dark. And the interactions I've had with some governments persuades me that their understanding of technology is lamentably poor. And that means that they don't see the wall being pulled over their eyes. It means that they're inert at best and kind of um, seducible at worst when um, tech companies come promising to save them, help them do good things. You know, they don't know the questions to ask. They don't know. They don't understand the language, the vocabulary, what's involved, what the consequences are. And and that's a shame. I, I I think it's a huge shame. I think it's absolutely true. I'm not convinced government will ever keep up with the technological pace of change. Uh, but that's not to say they shouldn't try. But I also feel that business does need to. You said something earlier about business doesn't have kind of social legitimacy. Was that no. the phrase you used? I'm, I I feel I feel that's not good enough. You know, if we have these corporations that wield huge power in our society. Um, they need to sustain sustain us all, not just themselves, to sort of paraphrase something I, I read in your book. Um, do you not agree that that uh, corporations need to take more kind of social responsibility um, given that the power that we've yielded to them? Well, I think they I think they should, but that raises the question of what happens when they don't? Right. Yeah. I mean, yes, I, I absolutely think that they should. But at the moment, the way that things stand is that whether I take society into account or not in my business is my choice. So if you're lucky and I'm a nice, socially conscious person, um, then I'll make good decisions for society as a whole. But if I'm if I really don't give a damn, then I won't. And that, I think, is unacceptable. And that, I think, is where you know regulation has to come in, which is to put the boundaries around corporations in terms of what they can and can't do without political approval. Yeah, regulation or kind of people power or, you know, consumer pressure as well. Um... I, th- I think all of those things really matter. I'm rather disappointed by consumer power in the sense that people say they really care about you know, how companies work and so on. But um, you know, I'm about the only person I know who, does, who doesn't shop with Amazon. So, you know, and I just get, you know, I get all these kind of rather pathetic excuses about, oh, but it's so convenient. You know, honestly, it is not wildly inconvenient to buy things elsewhere. Economically, it's extremely robust to do so and extremely beneficial to do so. And as a writer, of course, I have, you know, I read a lot of books, I buy a lot of books, and guess what? There are all sorts of other places 
I can buy all of them. Absolutely. So one of the things I really enjoyed in your book, I can't remember which chapter it was, but you talked about the need for cathedrals. I think metaphorically, you were speaking yeah. metaphorically. So you cited places like CERN, the uh, the kind of physics laboratory in G- Geneva, and the Human Genome Project. Um, I'd love to hear you sort of make the case a little bit more for the need for these metaphorical cathedrals and what, what cathedrals you think we could and should be building today, given the, you know, given the conversation that we've been having in the context that we're living in. Yeah. You know, this came to mind for two reasons. One is I live very near one of the great Gothic cathedrals and indeed Europe and have been, you know, very fascinated by how it was built, why it continues to be relevant to the community where I live. And then I encountered Stephen Hawking's um, comment about cathedral projects, which he defined as, you know, projects which are, initiated with the expectation that they will last longer than a human lifetime. And as a consequence, of course, they are uh, in a way impossible to plan if you think of planning in the kind of conventional business context. Um, and I thought, okay, so this is really interesting. If you want an organ if you want an organization to last not forever, but you know for as long as humanly possible, Bearing in mind that most corporations have roughly an average lifespan of a human being. Now, how would you go about doing this? So one of the things that I did is I took myself down to my local cathedral and learned a lot about how these places were built. And it's quite fascinating because they did not have architects. They had stonemasons who started off knowing that they would never see the project finished, which is quite something you have to have a lot of admiration for such people. And, of course, what they did is they really did lots of experiments. You know, they they kind of tried stuff. And, and there's a whole book, one of my favorite books, called Why Buildings Fall Down. You know, a lot of cathedrals fell down or bits of them fell down. And then they had to be rebuilt. And, you know, lo and behold, maybe a new technology like a flying buttress had come along. So they were hugely adaptive to new learning about how to build things. And uh, and they have continued in many instances, not all instances, to be hugely adaptive to what the world needs and what they can offer. And so, you know, the cathedral near me, you know, is 1100 years old and it's still a vital part of the community and has real value and meaning to that community. So I, you know, so it raised in my mind this question, okay, so what are the modern equivalents? And I think CERN is a modern equivalent, you know, and talking to the people responsible for bringing it into being, it's clear that although they didn't think of it like this, this is actually what they were thinking about when they founded CERN, which was, you know, an, uh, a center for nuclear research, which would be exclusively for peaceful use and exactly what it would be doing five or 10 years from its inception and how it would be doing that. The founders had no idea, Um, but they thought this this is a fundamental activity worth doing. So let's invest in it heavily and let's just essentially, it sounds mad, I know, let's see what happens. (laughs) <laughs> and let's see what we find. And of course, the, the consequence is that they found an enormous amount that had they set out to find what they knew could be found, they would never have found. And so it's a really fascinating model of what happens when you have a very loose ambition 
but very tight definitions of, you know, standards and quality and accuracy. And people tend to think, oh, no, if you're going to do something kind of big and difficult, then the mindset has to be absolutely about, you know, perfect accuracy all the way through. But actually, if you do that, it won't be creative. It'll only ever be incremental. Um, you can take, I mean, the human genome is a beautiful, you know, example of this in the sense that when it was first conceived, it was going to be, it was going to be a kind of one-off project, right? Um, they were going to decode the genome and then that was going to be that. And then, of course, they discover that the genome isn't quite what they thought it was. And along the line, all sorts of new technology emerges, which make it easier to do the work at much greater volume, much faster. And suddenly you open up this gigantic whole new area of science, technology and medicine. And things become possible at enormously unpredictable rates and moments. And so the institution is designed to be able to respond to those on a major scale very quickly. And I think there's some really interesting questions in that about how far in other kinds of organizations we could and should be thinking that way. That instead of thinking, you know, that the finance is the measure of everything, that actually what we produce is the measure of everything. And that we have to be much more open in our thinking if we want to make really major breakthroughs. Yeah, I love I love that. I see glimmers of that kind of thinking, but but not enough. So it's really refreshing to hear you say that. I'm curious whether you consider yourself a metaphorical stonemason, Margaret, and if so, what uh, <laughs> what what could we build together, perhaps, um, or what should we be building that could transcend a human lifetime now? We clearly have to not just think about how we address the climate emergency that we're in, but a much bigger question about how do we how do we form re truly regenerative societies, societies which don't deplete the planet, but also don't deplete people? Um, how do we, what are the consequences of questions like that for education? So how do we start thinking about an educational ecosystem, which is not just, you know, age five to 18 or age five to 22, but really speaks to the human capacity to keep learning and changing throughout an entire lifetime. Now, once you start asking those questions, it becomes painfully obvious that you don't start by saying, oh, well, it's about the curriculum, right? It's just completely not where you start. So, so once you start asking these kind of cathedral-like questions, you know, if you think that the cathedral down the road from me starts with what is the greatest way in which we can glorify God, Right, um, you start finding very diff different paths to walk. Now, I'm not a religious person, but I have gigantic respect for the audacity of the question. So if you think, okay, how do we glorify human gifts? And that's where you start thinking about, or the way in which you start thinking about education, you start finding very, very different paths to go down some of which will be fruitful and some of which might not, but, but you're on a very different kind of journey. And I see very, very few people um, willing, actually even able to think about those questions without being panic-stricken um, because there are no schedules or budgets. Yeah, I, yeah I, 
I love that. I have no, I know I have no direct response, but I think I definitely want to kind of chew over that. Yeah. How can we be all that we can be? Um, that's a, that's a great question, which I won't even attempt to answer right now, but thank you. But it definitely does not start with curriculum and exams. Mm. Where does it start perhaps? Where else might it start? Um, I don't know. I haven't, um, this is not what my next book is about, right? Um, I, just, I just think that if you ask these different kinds of questions, you start uncovering ways of thinking and building, which if you enter into a subject with a planning mindset, which is a mindset that most people are educated to have, then you don't get very far. What is your next book about? Just give us a, a tiny taster, if you don't mind, or is it is it top secret at this point? It's pretty much top secret at this moment because I'm wrestling with whether or not I think I'm a good enough writer to write it, and that's a really, really, really <laughs> unproductive question because the only way to find out is to try. So I'm going to try, but whether it will turn into a book or something else, I don't know. But I find that weirdly reassuring, given that you've written how many books? Eight books? Nine books? Six. You've Six. Okay. But I'm sorry to hear that. That also sounds challenging. I, I look forward to seeing what emerges. So what's the best question I haven't asked you yet that I should have? Well, I think the way we tie it together is in a way to go back to your original question about uncertainty. You know, and I think that, and because we were talking about writing, maybe this is a useful place to end. Um, I never know when I start a book if I can write it. I mean, I... I like to think I will. I think I have enough sense of what it ought to be that I, I have a way to start at least, but I never know if I can write it. And one of the things I've learned along the way is that at some point in the course of writing it, I will hit a chapter that I that just drives me crazy because I don't know how to write it. And every way I try to write it, it fights back. And it throws my, you know, it throws me completely. And certainly the first time this happened, it, because it was my first book, I thought, oh, this is, maybe this means I'm not really a writer. But I, you know, I kept at it and eventually I kind of wrestled it to the ground. Well, when I hit when I hit a chapter like that in my second book, I thought, aha, this is the notorious second book problem where, where writers wonder, you know, if they only ever had one book in them. Uh, but I got through that one. And then my third book, when I hit this, you know, the problem chapter, I thought, ah, oh, it's that bloody chapter. <laughs> <laughs> so it became a pattern. It became a, and a recurring I, theme. Yeah. And the thing I realized was that actually that bloody chapter always mm. ended up being my favorite chapter. Because hmm. it was the chapter in which I encountered the most that I did not understand. Yeah. And so, so writing is both the hardest thing I do. But that's what makes it the most rewarding thing I do, because every book I've ever written, I've started off because I had a question I didn't know how to answer. And writing the book was was how I found my answer. So I guess coming back to where we started, you know, the, the capacity of uncertainty to power change, you only really capture if at least you start, not because you know you can do it but because you simply can't bear the idea of not trying. Thank you, Margaret. I really loved that conversation and got so much from it. I particularly liked what she said about the gap between the belief we have that things are certain 
and the reality um, and that we should optimize for robustness not efficiency when faced with complexity i also really enjoyed the bit towards the end around cathedrals with loose ambitions yet with high standards and how can we be all that we can be and glorify human gifts so if you want to find out a bit more about margaret please check out the links in the episode description this podcast is produced by liminal a collective intelligence community supported by all of our patrons and members so thanks to all of you if you want to find out a bit more about us, please check out www.weareliminal.co. It would be really fantastic if you would like, comment, subscribe, or share this episode with others who might like it as well. Please do it now before you forget. And until next time, please keep on connecting people and ideas. If you do, you never know what might happen. Thank you and goodbye.